Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. Fact Check This podcast, and today I'm joined by Stacy, and we are going to talk about the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, and the press, and everything else, but before we do that, because I'm not sure uh, exactly what the demographic of my listener base is in terms of, so I, I kind of do this very specifically for like people that I'm friends with that don't really know a lot about libertarian type stuff, uh, so like, I, t- I try to introduce people to ideas and stuff that uh, they may not necessarily be used to or have seen a lot of. It really came from a friend of mine who is, like, super uh, anarchist that when I said something about, uh, like, libertarian ideas, she had never heard of the Libertarian Party or libertarianism or any of that. And I was like, okay, like, there are people that I know that, uh, are totally on board with this stuff and know nothing about it. So, you know, maybe I can help some of those folks who aren't normally going to listen to a Joe Rogan or a Dave Smith or something like that, uh, right. kind of find some of this stuff. So introduce yourself and uh, kind of tell us a little bit about what you do and then we'll we'll get after it. Okay. So hi, everybody. Justin, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's It's really nice to meet you face to face. Um, I am Stacy for truth. Um, that's my last name for truth. (laughs) That really is my real last name. Um, I was a teacher, uh, lawyer, um, worked on both sides of the criminal justice system. Um, now I'm a teacher again and I'm starting my own podcast. I don't know if I would call it like a libertarian podcast, but it's a, it's a truthing podcast. It's, it's, my forte is like government corruption, Um, which is why I'm not very popular because I get censored, (laughs) but that's okay. I'm, I'm really totally cool with that. I don't, I don't need to be popular. My goal is to just share a little bit of truth here and there. And if I can teach somebody, you know, something about constitutional law or criminal law or, you know, anything that I actually know about, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know about, um, with libertarianism, especially like it's all based on theory and, um, and I haven't read all of those big books by Rothbard and Hoppe and Mises and, and everything. So, um, so I, I'm, and you know, there are enough people who are talking about libertarian messaging. You guys don't really need me to like talk about something that I'm 
I yeah. don't, I don't like, I don't like talking about messaging, you know, I've, like. I've tried to kind of change gears a little bit myself over the past uh, couple months or so and, and be a little more uh, focused on like a specific topic as opposed to broad, uh, like messaging type stuff. Like, Right. Like I, I did one where I talked about ag policy and I talked about the civil war and about like went dug into the communist manifesto. Like I, I'm, I've kind of taken that same approach. Like I, at first it was me ranting and raving and, and it was a lot of fun, but I've kind of <laughs> wanted to be a little more specific in what I approach and the way I approach it to, to, to get a better I guess a better message from my point of view in terms of like stuff that's going to actually uh, speak to people, not just another guy screaming into the ether about the ills of the government, you know? Right. No, leave, leave that to me. I'll scream into the ether about the ills of the government. <laughs> well, so on to today's topic, because we are going to, we are going to talk about that. Uh, because okay. that is our First Amendment right, is to scream into the ether. And you and I have both been censored on stuff. Uh, I think some of my best content is the stuff that's gotten taken down, honestly. Um, I, and the reason I love the title of your podcast, Peddling Fiction. No, I'm the fact check this. Oh, you're uh, fact check. Wait, who's peddling fiction then? That's Johnny. So Johnny Profito was my, he was the first guy that I worked for in this whole podcasting game. And uh, he's got the best intro of no offense to any of the others that I work with, but he's got the best intro. If you ever just listen to the first, you know, couple minutes of his podcast, his intro music and the way he's got it put together, his, his is hands down the best. Uh, yeah. He was the first one that I started working for. And then that springboarded me off into all of the other half a dozen that I get to work for now too. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. So mine is called the fact check this. And okay it kind of stemmed out of the the first thing that I'm going to talk about today, which was these fact checkers that anytime you post something, you get fact checked. And, mm -hmm. and I read, I read literally everything. Like if it pops up, I read it. Uh, I, I like to be informed about stuff. And, and I'm also very open to the idea. And I, I say it on pretty much every episode, like I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong so that I can get it right. And the problem that I have with the fact checkers is the overwhelming majority of the time, if you actually read the fact check article, the first paragraph will disprove whatever the post was. But if you continue to read the entire thing, they end up backpedaling and basically saying, well, it was actually all true, but it was missing context or it was not exactly... Uh, worded properly or some dumb shit like that it like it, it always backpedals on itself and ends up saying that we're fact checking this as false but really it wasn't false uh and that's that's what i wanted to get to to start out because you know we are talking about the freedom of speech and freedom of expression and the first amendment and everything and so i got fact checked on the post about that uh the biden administration is teaming with the dnc and wanting to censor SMS uh, messages and like text messages that are spreading medical misinformation and which came from a Politico article of all things and th so that got fact checked as false but if you read through the fact checker 
it it really does go into um, they're not going the DNC isn't going to be taking your messages and censoring your messages but what they're going to be doing is teaming with the third party administrators of these applications to find the misinformation and punish you for it and it and it says you know Biden's not doing this directly but it it's the DNC that's going to be participating in it. So, so it's fact-checked false, but as you read through the article, they're just changing words around to say that the original headline was true. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I looked into that yesterday because somebody told me that Jen Psaki said that they were going to be looking through text messages. And I was like, well, I want to hear her say that on video. And then um, I I don't know if it was the same article that you had, but I looked through the article and I tried to find a link to the video and I couldn't find it. But I mean, I don't doubt it. You know, thanks so to Edward Snowden, we, we know that the NSA see, has access to all of our text messages. That's really interesting because I remember the day that that, the day that that article came out and the video was there, like it was all over Twitter and that mm -hmm. it has disappeared. Like it, it's like it never existed. I, I, can't oh, I... Find, I can't find it anywhere now. Like I, I very specifically remember watching the video thinking, oh shit, this is like some straight up 1984 stuff. And, right. and now the video is gone. It, like it's been wiped from existence. So uh, that happens. I, I mean, that, you know, that's kind of scary in and of itself, but yeah, yeah, so so let's get into it. Let's uh, let's talk about the First Amendment and, and some of that stuff because I mean this. However you however they want to implement it, I mean it is some pretty uh, scary, it is some pretty scary implications that come from that kind of stuff. Right. Well, do me a favor and give me permission to screen share. Okay. And I'll show you some things. Well, there you go. Thank you. Okay. So, share sound. And, okay, so first let's, let's listen to what Jen Pisaki said in regards to Facebook, okay? Here we go. Uh, with these social media platforms uh, and those uh, engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID-19 team. Uh, given as Dr. Murthy Mur uh, conveyed, uh, this is a big issue of misinformation specifically on the pandemic. In terms of actions, Alex, that uh, we have taken or we're working to take, I should say, from the federal government, uh, we've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with doctors and medical professionals to So I'll just pause. We're flagging inappropriate posts on Facebook for Facebook. So the government is working with Facebook to flag what the government has decided is misinformation. 
connect uh, two connected medical experts with popular with popular who are popular with their audiences with uh, with accurate information and boost trusted content. So we're helping get trusted content out there. We also created the COVID nineteen the COVID Community Corps to get factual information into the hands of local messengers. And we're also investing, uh, as you all have seen, in the presidents, the vice presidents, and Dr. Fauci's time in meeting with. Okay, so this does make Facebook a government actor, and here's why. This is from, okay, so this is an article that Glenn Greenwald wrote. Congress escalates pressure on tech giants to censor more, threatening the First Amendment, and it's written by Glenn Greenwald. And so what I did, uh, Glenn Greenwald is... Um, He's also a lawyer. He's not just a journalist. He's also a lawyer. And I actually really hate um, getting legal information from journalists who are not lawyers. I know that's kind of snobby and stuff, and I'm sorry about that. But, um, but that, you know, we know that when he gives legal information that it's true. So this was just something that I screenshotted from his article. He says, you know, while the First Amendment does not apply to voluntary choices made by a private company about what speech to allow or prohibit, it does bar the U.S. government from coercing or threatening such companies to censor. In other words, Congress violates the First Amendment when it attempts to require private companies to impose viewpoint-based speech restrictions, which the government itself would be, would be constitutionally barred from imposing. So here's the thing. It's a private company, bro. Well, guess what? Guess what, libertarians? Um, a private company can also be a government actor for purposes of the First Amendment. Now, a private company like Odyssey is not a government actor because Odyssey is not being controlled by the government and Odyssey is not getting any kind of benefit from the government. They're not working together. The government is not telling Odyssey how to run their platform. The government is clearly, like, I, I, I can't even, you know, I've been watching the progression of all of this rollout, right? And I'm going like, okay, big tech, they're government actors. You know, I watched this um, old video on like how the CIA contracted to, in order to create Google Maps, right? Because the CIA wanted to be able to spy on everyone. So of course we needed Google Maps. Um, <laughs> so just things like that, but nothing, nothing has been as in your face obvious as this statement made by Jen Psaki. You know, we're, we're working with Facebook to flag misinformation and, you know, have it taken down. So yeah, so who decides what's true and what's not true? Right, Clearly, like, who's the, the, government. Who's the we? Who, who are the, who's this, you know, panel of experts that gets to, that gets to pass along to Facebook Hey, these are the people that are saying things that are wrong, and you need to take them down. Like, that, I mean, right. well, let's 
let's talk a little bit about like who the fact checkers are because I have something else very interesting that I just, Thomas Massey just tweeted it. I, I have a feeling oh, you are going to bring up some stuff that I have been bringing up for several months. Uh, Good. Are you, are you looking at the pointer group? No, I'm. Okay, I, so. So one of the things that's really interesting, especially if you look at Facebook's fact checkers, is uh, the Facebook fact checkers are funded by a number of different entities and organizations. But if you look at like 80 to 90% of those entities and organizations, they all go back to this, uh, this like big overarching company called the Pointer Group. And the Pointer Group is a massive like left-wing uh think tank type thing like it is uh, there there is no uh there is no bipartisanship with who is funding all of these fact checkers like they are straight up big government democratically run like everything it's uh the fact checkers are it's a farce to say the, least. the, the fact checkers are biased right so check this out. Thomas Massey, he's, he's just brilliant. He really is. Facebook's vaccine fact checker is funded by an organization that holds $2 billion of vaccine manufacturer stock. And there's another, um, he's been tweeting the same message over and over again. And, you know, there's another, there's another tweet that I have bookmarked somewhere. I don't, I, you know, I don't have it like right this second, but he's, he's right. He's right. So the people who are fact-checking the vaccine misinformation are the same people who have an interest in those particular vaccine companies um, doing well. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think it was, I think it was there. They're very heavily invested in Moderna. I think it was. I can't remember which one it was, but I'm, Pfizer, I'm positive it was Moderna. Moderna and Pfizer have been the chosen companies for quite some time now. See, that's funny too. Uh, I had found a thing from 2017 that I, I talked about a few months back that really detailed how Moderna as a company for this like big, you know, billion dollar company that it is, it was really looking at the potential of bankruptcy and total failure as a company, unless something came along within the next five years or so that kind of changed the landscape of things and put vaccination, like put vaccines at a, like an elevated level because Moderna was so heavily invested in vaccine related uh, research and production and everything else that like as a company they were going to fail unless something huge came about and changed that really pushed vaccines to be a like a, a thing that could support their business and lo and behold three years later that's the thing like I mean yeah it, it's, yeah. it's too coincidental to, you know, it's too convenient to just be pure coincidence. Like, it, it just feels too much like it's all uh, very 
very highly connected, which I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You want to see something else? Yes. Let me show you. This is this is Fauci. From, they're talking about the BioShield project. Are you um, familiar with the BioShield legislation? Mm -mm. Okay, so it was, um, it was like they started trying to enact the bio, well, the BioShield, BioShield 1, I believe was enacted in 2003, and then they were trying to enact BioShield 2, and they were talking about how to make sure that the government would not be liable for any vaccine injuries that were sustained by the people, the people who took these vaccines. And that this was like, you know, after the whole September 11th, and they're like amping up on spyware and all of that. So this video that I have is dated um, it's dated 2011, but I think that it's, I think that it's older than that. Hold on one sec. Um, well, and on that, uh, I'm, cause I'm pretty sure it was the, the episode that I've shared like 4 million times of, uh, where you and Pete interviewed, uh, Dr. Del Bigtree. Didn't oh, we yeah. talk about uh, the VARES and kind of like the, the origins of VARES and, and how it was more or less designed as a as a program to uh, remove liability from the companies producing the vaccines. Like that's mm -hmm. that's crazy stuff in and of itself. And yeah. Yeah. And let me show you, let me just show you part of this video because it's really, it's like, Fauci is saying, let, let me, it speaks for itself. Hold on a sec. All right. Reuse and those events, because these events are. Let's flip it the other way. If you can't show that it's harmful, can you, do you know of any studies that prove oh, that uh, a federal. We need to, to, to try to find, and the, the companies, I think. These situations, but obviously this is an issue that needs careful attention and should be addressed effectively. And traditionally, it's been a tough issue in, in the Congress, uh, House and Senate, a little divided on it as well. Um, finally, uh, to uh, uh, Mr. Brown and Dr. Fochi, the administration's proposal gives the president permanent funding authority for research, development, and uh, production of biochemical countermeasures. What do you think this could end up costing at the end of the day? The, uh, the initial projection that was made based, and, and again, this is something that we, we try to scope out because you're dealing with scientific opportunities that can change due to breakthroughs as well as change in the risk assessment. But in the President's proposal, the 10-year proposal for the prior Project BioShield procurement was about 5.5 by 5.6 billion. Over 10 years. Our problem, of course, is we don't know what diseases could come forward, what the next Correct. SARS could right. be. Uh, yeah. what it could be more, it could be less. Yeah. I would like to emphasize, though, that none of this money gets spent unless, number one, we make a determination that 
the countermeasure is needed and is truly valuable. We set the terms for the contract. If we don't think a countermeasure is worth the cost, it's not going to get a contract. And then we don't actually pay anything unless that, we don't actually pay any significant amount unless that countermeasure actually gets delivered and does work. But what's clear is that the current law just does not, uh, you know, afford us uh, the flexibility that we need to encourage industry right. to get into this. We, we can't give assurances to them, as I said in my opening statement. We can't tell them when they deal with us and say, we want to get involved in this. Uh, we're willing to take risks even. We, we have people who come with, to us and say, we have, we, we've, re we've reached a certain point and now we need to go to the next step of building a new plant or investing another $100 million or so. But we're, we're willing to take that risk, but we're not willing to take a risk of being successful in what we do and then finding out that no one wants to buy the product. So can you give us an assurance on the current law given the vicissitudes of the, of the appropriation process, we really can't give them firm assurances that if they deliver, as Dr. McClellan said, a, a, a licensable, a licensed uh, bio account, biomedical countermeasure, we can't give them the kinds of assurances under the current situation that we would be able to do on the Project BioShield. Right. So. <laughs> wow, uh, yeah, so, so the, basically the Project BioShield is the way of uh, ensuring that the pharmaceutical companies will do whatever the government wants them to do with the assurance that they're going to be adequately compensated for doing it, even if nobody wants it. I, th I mean, well, that, yeah, that, that looks exactly like what we've seen since November when the vaccines rolled out, like they're being very well compensated for. So, and it's, and it's the government who chooses which vaccines the people are going to take. Like the government has chosen Pfizer and Moderna. The government has not chosen Ivermectin. The government has not chosen, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but mRNA vaccines seem to be the ones that the government is choosing. And so yes, the government was somehow able to give assurances to their chosen vaccine companies that yes, if they created a product that yes, people would buy that product. What? And, yeah, and even <laughs> if people don't buy the product, we're still gonna pay you for the product. Even if it proved, if, even if it turns out that half of the US population doesn't want anything to do with this, we're still gonna make sure you get paid for it. And you're not gonna have right. any liability for the literally tens of thousands of adverse effects that have been coming out of it like we'll we'll cover for you on all of that right it's it's just it's disgusting and i can actually back that up with evidence too give me one second like what you just said 100 percent true and i'll show you i have the text of a senate hearing oh look here it is here it is here we go hold on um, See, this is definitely getting taken down from YouTube because if you can actually provide legitimate, hard proof yeah. of the things you say, oh, that, they take that shit down quick. I, yeah, this is why I. This is why I'm not popular. <laughs> this is this is the text of a Senate hearing from. Let's see, what? Let, let me see what what year this is from. Control click. That way, if anybody wants to like find the document, they can find it. Okay, 
hearing of the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, United States Senate, 109th Congress, blah, 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 July 14th, 2005. Now, this is part of that Senate, the text of that Senate meeting. So I'll just go to the part where Mr. Ludlum is talking. And this is Chuck Ludlum. And if you don't know who he is, um, you know, just, just look him up. All these people are like, I don't know. I don't remember exactly who he is. My research is incomplete, but Chuck Ludlum. Um, so, so he says, well, so, so Chuck Ludlum, he's a lawyer. He's been involved in all this bio weapon stuff for decades. Well, as I think you know, I think that for the government to become a bio, to set up a biotech company of its own and basically to take on either the research and development responsibility or maybe even just the manufacturing, probably it will be the most costly, least effective way to proceed. So the government could try that. I think if the government sets up any kind of GOCO, which I'm assuming means government company or government corporation, any kind of a mechanism like that, it will definitively end the interest of the pharmaceutical industry in its research. They will say basically, whew, we don't have to do it. The government is going to do it. We won't be blamed for not doing it. The government can go off and spend any amount of money on a defense contract or model and whether it will succeed or not is their problem. It's no longer our problem politically or scientifically or medically or legally. Um, so this isn't the, I don't think. I mean, well, I, that's, that kind of gets to sort of what we're looking at uh, right now with stuff anyway. Like if the government was doing this on their own and funding it for themselves, then then all of the private ph pharmaceutical companies would just, they would back off. They wouldn't even touch it because then it's the government's problem. Whereas right. if they're doing it the way they're doing it now, where the government is still removing all the liability, still providing all the funding for it, but giving it all to these big pharmaceutical companies, like, I mean, the lobbies are clearly doing their job. They're, they're getting all the money and they're able to do whatever they want with pretty much complete autonomy. Like to some extent, I think the government may um, point them in the right direction of what specifically they want them to do, but they get to do their own thing and have no, no rely or no liability, no accountability and really no overhead costs because the government's going to take care of all of it. So I, I mean, this, right. like the, the medical system that we have may be like, like that socialist, uh, healthcare systems are not good, but like a capitalist, like fully capitalistic healthcare system also may not be the best, but what we seem to have is like the worst aspects of both of those combined into this abomination. Right. Right. Really, really we do. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not, that's my problem with, with, um, government healthcare, like why would I want the government to go anywhere near my healthcare, knowing 
all of this. So I found the, the rest of that statement. So he said, um, so I think that is an extremely risky last gasp desperation strategy if we have tried every other possible way to get this industry to play at their own risk and their own expense, which is obviously the preferred method in BioShield 1 and BioShield 2. So if they spend the money and they take the risk, then they are entitled to both dramatic incentives at the end, including liability protections because they took the risk. So the companies end up getting liability protections, which means that we can't sue the companies. Okay, because if they don't succeed, they don't get the procurement. This is what Fauci was just talking about in the video. If they don't succeed, they don't get the procurement, the IP, or the liability protections. And that's the way it should be. We should shift the risk to them instead of the government trying to take it on itself. So we always knew that the government wasn't, well, the government set it up in their BioShield legislation so that we knew that the government wasn't going to be liable for any injuries caused by the vaccines. And now... And it seems like from that, they're, they're also kind of, the government uh, with the BioShield 1 and 2 was kind of giving itself a, like an out to say that if the pharmaceutical company failed to deliver whatever it is that they're, you know, supposed to be producing, then it's on them. Like, they're taking all the risk. But right. like, but they're, but then, if, you know, I guess that's the uh, kind of the public image of it that you don't want the public to think that you're just going to fork over all of the money to these jet, these giant pharmaceutical companies, no matter what. So you, you have to, you know, put on the front that if they don't do what we ask them to do, then obviously we're going to, we're not going to give them money for that and, and they'll be on the hook for it. Uh, but now what you're seeing is like, they, the government has, basically subsidize this like they have ordered these vaccines and so mm -hmm. regardless of the effectiveness of it because i mean they can say that it's 99 percent effective but is that yeah. like what to what extent is that even verifiable like that you know they want to they want to give misinformation and and say stuff is taken out of context they say all this stuff about uh all the testing that's done they can say all this stuff about the effectiveness None of that's verifiable in any way. There's no actual proof or evidence of that other than that's the narrative and the, the talking point that these uh, fact checkers who are also backed by Big Pharma and the government have come up with. Right, right. And this is just, this is so funny that this language that's being used by Chuck Ludlum is like the exact same language that Fauci used. I, I didn't really, I didn't notice that until just now, actually. If they don't succeed, they don't get the procurement, the IP or the liability protections. So if they succeed, then they do get the procurement and the liability protections. So, and then, you know, like Fauci was saying, can you give them, can, can you give them assurances? We want to give them assurances that if they, if they um, produce this product that is effective, that basically like the, gov the government already paid 
for this, right? So the government gave that assurance by like giving the money to these pharmaceutical companies. And so now the government wants to be reimbursed for what it already paid, regardless of whether there are other products out there that are better than the ones that they are proffering to the people. I mean, that's it's like, like any, it's like totally... anything. Yeah, it's like anything that the government touches. It has its own uh, self-interest in mind. And if something better comes along, well, that doesn't matter because they've already invested into what they've invested into and they need to get that, you know, they need to get their money back out of that investment. So, so they don't care what's the most efficient. They don't care what's the most effective. They don't care what actually makes sense. They have to do what they've already committed themselves to do. And usually what they've committed themselves to do is waste a whole bunch of money on, you know, these massive pharmaceutical companies or defense contractors or what have you. And like, it, it's not about logic and reason. It's about whose pockets are we padding so that they can turn around and send it back our way. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh This is the first time that I've shared any of this and honestly like I'll warn you like that video that I played, I've shared it so many times and it usually gets um like if you noticed it only had 8 likes. And I've shared it so many times. Like but this is the first time that I've ever presented it on video during um during a podcast so and every time i have like um attached that link to a tweet twitter does that thing to where the link is only visible to me <laughs> unless i unless i send that tweet to someone via dm if i send it via dm then the link is visible and whoever i sent it to can click on it but but I've had people tell me, Stacy, did you um, ask me, hey, did you attach the link? Because I can't see it. And then like, I'm like, I'll take a screenshot of my tweet and be like, yeah, like it's right here. You can't see it. And no, Twitter just makes my links invisible. So, so I wouldn't recommend putting this on YouTube <laughs> because they'll just delete it. Like that's what they do. That's, and like the interesting thing about that video and and that congressional hearing and everything else, and like a lot of the research that I've done over the last you know six eight months or so, is a lot of this stuff goes way back. Like it, like I said, like the the Moderna article was from 2017. There was right. multiple articles and like research studies that. Dr. Fauci himself participated in that talked about masks and the ineffectiveness of masks, except in very specific situations and circumstances. And, and like all of this stuff, the further you look back at it, the more it all really kind of seems like it's been building for 20 years. And this is like the culmination of all of this shit that they've been working toward to I, I mean, no, without meaning to sound too much like a complete, you know, conspiracy theorist, it really, <laughs> it really feels like a twenty-year culmination, a, a culmination of twenty years worth of plotting and planning a way to just 
bring everything about corporatism into full effect and and like fully seal the deal of government, big pharma, big business in lockstep doing like enacting their will regardless of what anybody wants. Right. Right. I, I feel like that's that's exactly it. It's um we don't get to decide. We don't get to be in control of our own health care. The government will take care of us. Right. Uh, right. Like how many how many small businesses very easily probably could have participated in some of the you know the COVID restriction dumbassery for lack of a better way of putting it that went on last year. But they weren't even given the option. Like, if you if you didn't have that name brand, you didn't even get the option. Like, you right. had to be shut down. Like, how how does that how does that make sense? Like, mom and pop stores, uh, you know, privately owned small restaurants. Like, I, McDonald's never shut down that I'm aware of. Any you know around here anyway. Like, a lot of the big fast food chains they they changed the way they did certain things and they got to stay open. But the mom and pop shops, they had to shut down. Like, why? Uh, you know, the corner hardware store, they have to shut down. But Lowe's gets to stay open. And which, I wasn't mad about that. I was working at Lowe's at the time. It, it, COVID has been wildly Lowe's, Lowe's is like one of my favorite. Well, Lowe's and Home Depot are my favorite places to shop. I mean. For a while, I, mean, I owned Home Depot stock. Because <laughs> I was like, this is the thing to do right now. But like, you know, COVID has been wildly profitable for me and my wife and, and uh, because we both worked for Lowe's during pretty much all of the worst part of the lockdowns. So not only were we getting, uh, you know, we still had full-time jobs, but Lowe's was also giving out regular bonuses, almost monthly at times for everybody who was working, like basically like a hazard pay bonus type thing. And so, I mean, we made a, we made a killing off of COVID, but, uh, you know, the mom and pop shop just down the road, they had to shut down when they probably, they probably have a, a better control over, you know, limiting their customers in the store and being able to provide the services and everything that were necessary to meet those, those restrictions that were being put on everybody. I, they could have done that just as easily, but they didn't have they didn't have the clout. They didn't have the name, so they had to shut down, and, and right. they weren't given an option. Like, I mean, you saw it everywhere. There were plenty of places that the owners were <laughs> dragged out and forced to close because they refused to. When that's that's just insane. And they were doing everything that they could. Like, it wasn't even. It wasn't even like these, you know, store owners that you see in these videos and stuff were uh, like hosting super spreader events or anything. They weren't like telling sick people to come in. They weren't openly encouraging no masking or not social distancing or anything. Like by all accounts, they were doing everything right and still being forced to close yeah. for no more reason than because because the government, the government says, so. says so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, By the way, this this Chuck Ludlum guy, he um this is how I I this is how I started researching Chuck Ludlum. 
he this was this is in the Podesta the Podesta files on WikiLeaks. Um, Chuck Ludlam is requesting. He's sending a message to Tom, who reports to John Podesta, and he says, you know, hey, I see that you're organizing the transition for Obama. Exciting. I request to be designated as the lead for peace for the Peace Corps transition team. I also request to be a member of the team for handling the transition for the National Security slash Homeland Security Councils, focusing on bioterrorism and infectious disease. Um, so I thought it was also kind of weird that they were transitioning from one like organization to another organization because all of this used to fall under Homeland Security and now it's it's like under a different department. So, you know, like as you can see, he is requesting to be part of this bioterrorism and infectious disease. I've submitted to Richard and many others a detailed plan for the Obama administration. Why do we need a detailed plan? I I mean, unless you know what's going to happen before it happens, like, how do you know that the bats are going to escape and give people coronavirus? Like, how do you know that? Why, how do you, why do you need a, deep, a detailed plan? Let's see what the date of this is. Like, what's the date of this? Oh, 2008. So, it's, that's, that's funny. I guess not funny so much as interesting. I mean, I'm just it, it, wondering. It really felt like, like, from the time Obama came into office, like, I know we had mad cow or whatever and uh, some other dumb stuff, like, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But, like, <clears throat> it really felt like after Obama came into office, the almost annual, you know, next thing that's going to, kill all life on the planet real, that was when it really started to to ramp up uh h1n1 ebola zika uh, just on and on and on uh it, it feels like sars made a comeback during that time or or maybe it was a different uh a different version of sars which that's what covid is covid is a a, a different you know variant of SARS-CoV-2. Right. And so, so it, it really felt like that was when all of that started to, to ramp up and become this like perpetual cycle of this is the next thing that's going to wipe out all life on the planet. And, it, you know, every time mm -hmm. it petered out, like they never could. I, all right, I'm going full conspiracy theorists. We're just going to throw all just, the, we're going to throw yeah, all pretense out. So it seemed like H1N1, Ebola, like all of these different things, they were very deadly. But the problem, and, and I mean, this is, this is like, this is the science. This is the way that that kind of works. The more deadly something is, typically the less 
contagious it is because it burns itself out. Like it basically it murders its own uh, host stream faster than what it can reproduce. So, so thank you for explaining science in a way that it makes sense to me. <laughs> so, you know, you had H1N1, Ebola, all these like very, very deadly viruses. And they were going to be the next big thing that was going to wipe out the planet. And like they ramped up fear on every one of them. Like it was really happening. And then it never did because those viruses burn themselves out too quickly. Well, they figured it out. Like it feels like they figured it out. We don't need something that's going to kill everyone. We need something that's going to spread like wildfire. And if it does kill a bunch of people, cool. But we don't, that's not a necessity. It needs to be something that spreads fast. Mm -hmm. And so like in with, you know, with that in mind, doesn't it make sense that they've been funding the Wuhan lab and testing of these things for how long, like how long have, how long has the U.S. government been funding the labs in, in Wuhan and all of this? I mean, yeah. the, I don't know. I, wasn't there information about that in the Fauci emails? Yeah, yeah. And I and Rand, feel like I missed Rand a lot Paul of that. had mentioned it in one of his, and I can't remember. I mean, but it's been it's been longer than like the last two years. Like this has been going on for a number of years, like pre-Trump. Mm -hmm. it, it's not like uh, it's not yeah. like it's not like we literally just started funding this within the last, you know. 18 to 24 months. Like it's been well, going on for years. And I mean, like the World Health Organization, like, would you, we really think that China's not part of the World Health Organization? Oh, uh, so, you know, gosh, now, now I got to go find it. Um, there, there, so there are, there's documentation. Like China is one of the biggest funders of the World Health Organization. Like, and so they, is Bill Gates, yeah. Bill and Melinda Gates, and Bill and Hillary Clinton. Like, yeah, China this, China's one of the biggest, China's one of the biggest fingers in that pie. Uh-huh. And also, John Podesta is also, like, at the top of the World Economic Forum. John Podesta is, like, Hillary Clinton's right-hand man. And this email that I just showed you, you know, so Hillary Clinton was Barack Obama's Secretary of State. And this guy, Chuck Ludlum, was like, hey, I want to be part of your um, bioterrorism. What did he say? Well, shoot. Bioterrorism and infectious disease team. And this is all, you know, it's all going to John Podesta. John Podesta is um, the guy who's deciding. So yeah, so the World Health Organization is very, very heavily funded by the Gates family and the Clinton family. And um, I don't have a document at the moment to prove that, but it, it's it is. It's out there. It's, it is. <laughs> and it's just, it's like, I just don't understand why people won't, I don't understand why so many people just believe what they're told and don't question it 
And, but, but, you know, also like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not lawyering anymore. You know, I have a lot more time on my hands now than I used to. So I understand that. Um, See, I think I have, I, the, uh, I, I have, have the big advantage that I was raised by a very, very much a conspiracy theorist type of a father. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't like hardcore crazy, but he definitely looked at everything with uh, an eye of skepticism and and kind of encouraged that with, with me and my brother in, in everything. And I I definitely took it a lot further than uh, than he ever really did in terms of like really getting into looking at stuff and and becoming uh, much more of a anarchist and uh, like, yeah. like I, I I I took it a step further than what he had, but he definitely laid that foundation of you know question everything if it yes. if it doesn't seem right, ask questions. And if it seems too right, ask even more questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so funny because, so I used to be a teacher. Um, I still am a teacher. I just need to get my job back. <laughs> I've only been fired one time in my whole life. And I got fired from my teaching job because I had too many teacher no-shows because I used to start teaching Chinese kids at 3 a.m because that's their 3 p.m. Anyways, um, what was my point? I was so embarrassed about the fact that I got fired. <laughs> um, shit, what was I going to say? This happens to me on every podcast. I was talking about questioning everything, so. Oh, right. So I was a teacher, and when you're teaching, obviously you want your students to think critically you you want to teach critical thinking and so these you know conspiracy theories like if you have conspiracy theories that's pretty much just like making inferences and students are encouraged to make inferences you know at least you know that's part of every curriculum um you know you teach kids to ask how, why, is this true? How do I know that this is true? You know, what other questions do I have? If this is true and this is true, then maybe this is true. So that's what conspiracy, conspiracy theorizing is, is making inferences. Like if X and Y, then maybe Z. Let's think about it. Let's look into it. So I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, kids are taught critical thinking in school, but now we're not allowed to think critically. It's, we're not allowed to ask questions. So something I've known, noticed with my kids in school is like, especially looking at the, the common core methodology for doing math problems. Like, I was really good at math. I, I started out in engineering in college and I ended up going away from it because I, I wanted to do something uh, different. But mm -hmm. like I, I started out in engineering and I took trig and calculus and all the like advanced mathematics courses and stuff through high school and, and some even on into college. And one of the, the most beneficial things for me was coming up through junior high and high school math, my primary uh, math teacher that I had for 
for most of those classes, he gave me the freedom to figure it out on my own. Like, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a way that you can do it that the book says, but if you can figure it out, then you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, and so my methodology might not be the same as the kids sitting next to me or the kids sitting next to me over here or is what the teacher has put up on the board. But if we're all coming to the same solution and we're getting the answer right, they, mm -hmm. you know, many streams come together to make the one uh, and it works. Like you figure it out. You, you think critically and you solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way the school does it. Like you have this yeah. common core me method for solving math problems. And that's the only way you can do it. You're not allowed to do it any other way. If you do it, it any other way, then they, they mark it wrong. Even if you yeah, got it right, I would, I would even if you got that. it right, they mark it wrong because yeah, you didn't follow the method that they set. And so like the way I've taught my kids how to do the math is I'm like, you solve the problem. And then once you get the answer, then you backtrack and fill in all the bullshit blanks for what they want to see for how you got the answer. But you get mm -hmm. the answer the way that makes the most sense to you. And, and make sure you get it, you make sure you get credit for it by backtracking and, and plugging in their dumb shit so that they think you did it their way, but you do it the way that makes sense to you. And, and I, if I kids aren't allowed to do what you did, like if, if, if people never like solved math problems a different way, then like the way that you, you know, like you had your own way of doing it, that's how that's how new things are created. That's how new ideas come about. You know, if everyone's just like doing it exactly the way that they were taught, here's my page of my geometric proof or whatever. Um, and they don't think about it. They just go through the process the way that they're taught and they don't think about it in their own way or in a different way, then they're never going to be able to create anything new. They're not, you know, like right. you, how many people, your, your brain is like an inventor's brain. How many people, instead of following the prescribed steps to get the solution, took their own steps and maybe they didn't come out to the solution that they were supposed to at the end, but they found something else that they otherwise wouldn't have, which created this whole, I mean, that's, you know, that's how invention comes about is usually usually somebody messes up and it uh, right. and you figure something else out that you didn't mean to like most most of the most creative things uh that I think I've done in my life uh, like I like to cook and stuff and uh some of my best cooking creations were me screwing some me screwing the original recipe up and coming up with something uh completely different that was just as good or better yeah yeah I I, I don't like recipes. It's like, it's going to taste different every time. Yeah. That, that's, Guess what? It's like a surprise dinner. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. My, I, I, will, uh, I will never have a meal that tastes the same two times in a row. Like every time right. I make it, it's going to be a little bit different. It, I don't, and I don't know how it's going to be different. I can't, I can't tell you ahead of time. I just know when I get ready to go start throwing it together, it's mm -hmm. not going to come together the exact way it, I did it last time, but it's still going to be good. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, do you have anything else? I feel like we 
I feel the like same can really... be said for salsa dancing. <laughs> oh man, I have there are like different pieces. It's so okay. So if you were an engineer, engineers make the best salsa dance partners because they because it's like that. It's like there's like all these little pieces of information, right? And you put them together in different ways. And um, yeah, and so they're never gonna, I mean, they are gonna learn turn patterns and stuff. And for a while they're gonna be doing like the same stuff over and over so that they can practice. But then they have that brain to where they can take things apart and then put them back together in different ways. So yeah, that kind of thinking should be encouraged for sure. Now I feel like uh, I need to take my wife and go take salsa lessons. Yeah, you guys should. Where do you guys live? Uh, Evansville, Indiana. Okay. I don't know if there's a big salsa community around here. I, I don't think so. But I live in Ohio. There's like no salsa community. Well, there's a tiny one in like Cleveland and Columbus. But I mean, I, I grew up in Florida. I'm just, I'm like salsa dancing. It's like my first love. L lawyering my second love <laughs> um talking shit on twitter and truthing my third love <laughs> the, the, those are those are definitely a lot of fun and uh in in modern times quite gratifying with uh everything yeah. going on yeah but yeah take your wife you guys should go um learn i i bet with your brain it, i think it you, you might just be cut out for salsa dancing. I, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just say things, but maybe try it. I've never gotten to talk about salsa dancing on a podcast before, so thanks. See, we'll have to do this again, and next time it'll just be completely <laughs> dedicated to salsa dancing. What's your, <laughs> no, that would be so boring for you. What's your wife's name? Uh, Stephanie. Stephanie, cool. Well, Ohio's not too, too far from... Indiana, maybe me and Pete can get together with you and Stephanie sometime. Heck yeah, that would be awesome. I, yeah. The, some of the most fun that I've had with all this, uh, my son and I took a trip to Birmingham and got to meet uh, Jeff Dice, Tho Bishop, Buck Johnson, uh, Pete was there, and a, mm -hmm. a couple others. So, and uh, the Human Action Podcast is my son's like favorite podcast. So, which is weird. Because it's just, you know, it's Jeff breaking down these books with somebody else. But Sean loves those for, for some reason. And so... Your, your son's got, name is Sean? Yeah. How old is he? Twelve. Oh, that's so cool. So when we got down there, I was like, that's that's Jeff right there. You should go introduce yourself to him. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't. I can't do that. I was like, Aww. just don't talk to him. He will totally talk to you. And he... Yeah. He got all shy and wouldn't do it. But, I mean, he sat at the table and talked to Buck and his wife, and, and that was great. And then uh, and then Stephanie and I went to the LP uh, Pennsylvania State Convention and mm -hmm. got to meet John Odermatt and Scott Horton, Dave Smith, a bunch of uh, Michael Heiss and a bunch of others. And she had a blast at that. And so, so now we're going to go in October. We're going to go down to the thing at Buck's Place in Lockhart, Texas, and nice. get to hang out and do that too so so it's been really cool to because like I get to interact with like you and other people on Twitter and stuff but getting to actually travel and meet people in person and like 
like yeah. actually like meat is real and then you know so doing stuff fun. like this too but it's so much fun to to be yeah. able to meet people in person and and make those like real life connections so thank you so much yeah. for joining me today I, I feel like this is really good and thank you so much for inviting me and i would love to have you on my show sometime well all right yeah let me know what you want to talk about and i don't know that i uh contribute any uh particularly well, unique takes on stuff but I, uh, no, you have a lot of interesting takes on stuff and you can, I always let my guests like choose what they want to talk about, awesome. like whatever, whatever you want. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I'll, uh, I'll come up with a game plan and we'll, we'll definitely do that. Yay. All right. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. See you later. Yep.